Hello there, and welcome to Gooner U, where there are no degrees because the learning never stops. I'm Dove, a TA here at Gooner U, and my friend Keith is our stalwart distinguished professor of Arsenal and football studies. This week, there was no Arsenal match because of the international break, so we have some other fun stuff to talk about today. How's your week been, Keith? It's been it's been good. Today, we were under 100 in Houston, so <laughs> the, the heat is broken. We were only 96 today, so thank goodness. All right. Small miracle. All right. So you can hear the relief in my voice. I know <laughs> as long as I'm not hearing the sweat in your voice, it's all good. So, <laughs> um, one thing that I thought was really funny this week, um, I, I saw a news article that was from this blog that I fi- follow, but talks about BMW motorcycles and cars. And they were talking about a new stadium in Germany. That's going to be called BMW park. And I needed to read the name of the team that this stadium was for a few times because I just want to make sure I was fully parsing this correctly. So it's FC Bayern Munich Basketball. Correct me if I'm wrong. The FC stands for football club, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, I suppose it's, it's Germany, the Fußball Club. Uh, if they want to be that. But it, it, so it is actually interesting. It is the, the FC Bayern Munich is actually the name of the, the club which does include a number of other sports, including obviously basketball. Um, I assume they're probably quite good at basketball. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I admit, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that was just kind of funny. Um, so a couple things that I wanted to follow up on from last week, one of which was we were talking about um, how I tried watching multiple MLS matches at once and dividing up the screen amongst a few different games. And you were talking about attention overload or something like that. And I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to that remark at the time, but I realized, you know, the way that I am. So we've talked about this before. I generally will not have a game that I care about, like an Arsenal match on in the background while doing other things, either I'm watching it or I'm not watching it or I'll watch the highlights or something. I don't usually Bless you. I usually don't have it on in the background. Um, it's and apparently that's just the way my brain works. Because even when I had like three games on in front of me all at once and cared about all of them to just to uh, almost the same degree, I, I cared about Miami a little bit more. But the one that was big, like I was only watching the one at a time. My attention was not flitting around, so I don't think I'll probably use that too much. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those I find I use that stuff a lot, like during college football, where I can watch like three or four games, none of which I. I care about, but I'm interested in. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, if there's a game I'm interested in, right, I'm going to put that on and I might like, I'll put that on my TV and I might have my computer off to the side. I'm like, all right, I'll have an eye on a couple of these other games. But, you know, the sound's way down low. It's, I'm watching. Right. But yeah, you, you, if there is one you care about, that's always, that's where you're going to pay attention. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, I mean, for me, like at a certain point, it just sort of becomes a sensory overload of like, I'm watching things at once, what's going on, I, which one am I watching? And so, yeah. you know. I think I would probably, if I ever did it again, it would just be to be watching the scores pretty much. Like I could see myself like glancing over every so often, just checking if anything happened. But right, yeah. <laughs> uh, something else I, I wanted to point out. So we we paid some attention to the fans who were leaving early um, at, before the end of the last match, where everything turned around. And what it occurred to me in listening back to our episode and reflecting on it a little bit more. This 
probably happens at every single sporting match since time immemorial. People leave early. What's funny about it more than anything else was that on the broadcast, they chose to show it this time. And it was just whoever's in the control room has their opinion about, look at these guys. Like <laughs> they're, they're so silly. They shouldn't be leaving. And so it's kind of opinionated editing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of <laughs> obviously the way the game played out. I mean, you're right. There are always a few people who leave early for, for all kinds of reasons, some of which might even be good. But obviously <laughs> to show that that way, I, I, I think back to the one I've always seen is um, it's a famous baseball clip that airs sort of all the time. Uh, Kurt Gibson hits a home run. I think it's game one of the 1988 World Series. And it, it, it's it's it, Gibson's hurt. Been, it was hurt. Wasn't sure he was going to play. So he kind of hobbles up to the plate. He hits the home run. The Dodgers end up with this massive upset. Uh, leads to a massive upset of, uh, to win the World Series. But but the interesting thing was pointed out to me once. You can see because they're in L.A. in, in Dodger Stadium, and you know the, the the top of the outfield seats isn't very high, so you can actually see out into the parking lot, and you can actually see as the ball is you know trajectory is flying onto the night. You can see a set of red brake lights turn on as the, as the ball's going through. It's somebody in the parking lot pulling out, <laughs> which meant they left early from a World Series game that wound up being one of the most famous in the history right. of baseball and the Dodgers. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody leaves early. There, actually, everybody, there are always some people who leave early. Yes, it is an interesting decision to show that. Uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we decided last week that we are going to follow the qualifications in the run-up to the World Cup. We began by following CONMEBOL, the South American Federation. Um, so I chose Argentina to follow. Keith, you chose Colombia. Uh, where would you like to begin today? Uh, you, you, you start the story with Argentina. All right. So that means it's that time for us to enter... The Messi room once more. So Messi did not play in Miami this week because he was in uh, Ecuador, who they won. They beat Ecuador 1-0. It was Messi who scored the winning goal. Uh, however, apparently, um, that he was complaining of some strain, I think he was saying, on his legs or something. Uh, he is not in the best physical shape at the moment. They have flown him to Bolivia for the match that will happen tomorrow for the second round. Um, they are not sure yet, as far as when I checked earlier today, they are not yet sure of whether or not he will play. They said it may come down to hours before the match when they actually make that call. But um, so far, if I say it's nothing to really be alarmed about, it may just be strain. He played a lot of games in high heat, a lot of them back to back. So, you know, who knows what what's going on? Hopefully everything's okay with him. Um, but the coach said that aside from whether or not Messi plays, it should be pretty much the same configuration uh, against uh, Bolivia that played against Ecuador. Of course, how similar can the configuration be when it doesn't have <laughs> Messi? But, but yeah, uh, so, so that will, we'll see with that Bolivia lost one five to Brazil in their first round. So yeah, I mean, that, that part was not surprise. Apparently, that game, the Bolivia game, I should say, um, you know, Argentina, of course, won to open their qualifying. The Bolivia game, though, saw uh, Brazil's Neymar, I believe they said they believe he scored, he scored two goals. We know that. We don't believe that part. We know that part. But <laughs> apparently, it was his, um, uh, apparently, ha has become the all-time leading scorer in Brazil's history, hmm. uh, which is which is kind of fascinating. Um 
Also, he's 31, which, you know, I don't, shouldn't say makes me feel old because I've always been older than him, obviously, but I, I guess I didn't realize he was 31. Wow. He has been around a while. So. Hmm. That also gives him a decent amount of runway to really embellish that record more, too. <laughs> Uh, possibly. It's kind of curious to see. He's now he's now playing in uh, Saudi Arabia, so it, it'd be curious to see how the Brazil sees him fitting into their plans. Obviously, they have World Cup qualifying. They have the Copa America next summer, um, and then of course the World Cup is in twenty six. He'll be thirty, da, 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 thirty four, thirty five. So, yeah, I maybe you know for the World Cup, and if they feel like maybe he's not going to be in their plans, maybe they don't rotate it, hit him in as much. On the other hand, you know, I, he's still he's still an excellent player. I, it's entirely possible he's... It, for, for, for Neymar, the big problem has always been injuries. He's always had moments mm. where he gets hurt and, and, is, and misses a bunch of time, and especially as he gets older, who knows? On the other hand, we'll see, you know, that the level of competition in Saudi Arabia compared to where he was at PSG and having played in, with Barcelona in Europe, the level of competition in Saudi Arabia isn't that. So who knows? Maybe right. that helps him a little bit in terms of keeping fit. Do you know whose record he beat? Was it Pele or? It's Pele's. It's yeah. Pele's. At least yeah. that's according to the official records. When you get to a country like Brazil, there are always, there are always sometimes, I shouldn't say a country like Brazil. For a lot of countries, there's some inconsistencies with some of their records because the further back you go, people weren't counting things in quite the same way. So sometimes mm-hmm. we're not quite sure. And you go far enough back. Was that an official international match or wasn't it? Today, we, okay. we make that firm distinction. In those days, well, one country thinks it was, the other country thinks it wasn't. So right. there are some gray areas in that, but um, which it wouldn't be fun, honestly, if there weren't any gray areas. But <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, Neymar is, is officially considered the all-time uh, leading scorer for Brazil, which is, which is something. Yeah, oh, nice. All right, time to leave the messy room because I don't really have much else to say about him for this week. And tell me, how did Colombia do? I'm surprised, by the way, you didn't get yourself some light blue for that for when he's with Argentina. But Ooh, uh, I'll have to try it. Blue and white. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was going to comment before, but it's fine. Uh, so, yes, uh, Los Cafeteros opened their qualifying with a win, 1-0 against Venezuela. This was at home. Uh, yeah, in, uh, in Barranquilla, in Colombia, uh, which is good. Venezuela is one of the weaker sides in South America. So this is a result uh, Colombia absolutely should have. Uh, the goal came just after halftime. It was Raphael Boré, who plays for Werder Bremen in Germany. A couple other familiar names uh, on the Colombian side. Uh, Jefferson Lerma played for Colombia. He's currently at Crystal Palace, so uh, we have already seen him this year. And then uh, also for Colombia, Yeri Mina, who currently plays for Fiorentina in Italy, but in last season played at Everton. So, hmm. um so potentially some familiar names for Premier League watchers. Uh, Colombia will next go to Chile, uh, which should be a much more interesting game, or certainly it could be a very important game for both of them. Uh, Chile, a country that just missed out on qualifying last time, will very much feel that they should be in it next time. And that, you know, always uh, going, going to Chile means going in the mountains, which can be a tough, uh, can be a tougher thing. Right. Yeah, one thing that was fun, uh, especially since we're following Comna Bowl right now, going back like in my past when I wasn't really actively watching sports, so you know, before a year ago, basically, right? <laughs> the rest of my life, I, I had played sports as a kid. I was somewhat familiar. I'd played soccer. I'd played baseball. I'd watched and played enough sports to kind of be conversant in it. 
and to even at times have a team that I consider to be my team, whether it was Chicago teams at the time or New York teams as I moved from Illinois to New York. But it was always tough for me. I never really wanted to wear a shirt or a hat of those teams because what happens? Well, okay, for some people, it's like, oh, cool. Okay, he's a Yankees fan, whatever. But every now and then you run into someone who's a real Yankees fan and wants to talk to you about whatever's happening. And I'd have to be like, yeah, cool. I, I, I have no idea, right? Well, now that I'm actually an active follower of Arsenal and football generally, it's really cool, especially because this is something that is universal as much as any sport could ever be, right? Mm-hmm. There's a guy mm-hmm. who I work with um, who we've outsourced some stuff to. He is a Colombian in Colombia, and I was talking to him about it. Like He's been following his national team, which I'm, I'm sure is probably a lot more common in other countries than it is in oh, the yeah. United States. But... It was cool. We, you know, we had, we had a good conversation about it, and uh, it was it was fun. So <laughs> maybe we'll have a correspondent <laughs> from from the ground in Colombia at some point. There we go. <laughs> you know, it it is interesting with the na- the club and national team. There really traditionally have been two sort of tracks in terms of Americans watching the sport. There are a lot who get in on the club side. Some of them are people who, I mean, a lot of them immigrants or people with connections to other countries who have connections to those leagues that they left or that they brought with them. Uh, or others of them are Americans who, you know, kind of got into the watching this European sport that was played over there. But of course, they adopted clubs. And certainly there were longtime Arsenal fans. I know some who have yeah, Americans who have been Arsenal fans since the 90s, um, you know, way back in, in ancient times of the previous century. <laughs> um, you know, and then there are others more like myself who actually got started watching through the national team. Um, I, you know, I've told this story before. I started watching soccer in 1994 when the World Cup was in the U.S. And so I've been a fan of the U.S. national team since then, which was, now I'm doing the math, was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Gosh, it was like 30 years ago at this point. Um, <laughs> but, but through that, having gotten more de- deep, more deeply into the sport, and from there, I was able to latch on to the club side of the game and, and, and picked up that angle. So, um, you know, for me, it's a slightly different, you know, they're really those two ways that have happened. And sometimes there's merging between them. And then you have some people who are like, they just watch the national team and they don't really care much about clubs or teams or anything like that. And then there are even some club fans, including Americans, they hate the international games. Why are they taking our players away? Guys get hurt and then they can't play and it's just a mess. And so, you know, it, there's a lot of sort of layers to that. But I am sure. I am a longtime U.S. national team fan. We talked about with, you know, Matt Turner and all of that. So, yeah. I guess, like, a brief thought on that. The thing that probably makes the least sense to me is when you compare to all the other sports in the world, for the most part, right, you don't have regular international play outside of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Now, there is soccer in the Olympics, right? I'm not misremembering that. That's correct. And I guess that is the big question, Is and I think I know what the answer is, but, (laughs) like, why do you need... World Cup. Why do you need regular federation and World Cup competition when you do have the Olympics that happens every four years also? So I, the answer uh, may, yeah. may be FIFA. FIFA wants money. but Well, it, but, I mean, it, it's one of those where the sport is so international that it, it sort of governed itself in a way that sort of others, other sports have used the Olympics as a springboard to expand their international presence soccer had that um Hmm. i mean the first world cup is 1930 now i believe they start playing soccer in the olympics but the olympics weren't quite the same kind of massive deal 
Plus, remember, for years, the Olympics were amateurs only. Right. Now, of course, there are some countries, the Soviet Union, who <laughs> played very fast and loose with the rules about what constituted amateur athletes. Right. Um, but the World Cup has always been fully open to professionals. They, that's it's So World Cup has really always been the best-on-best best tournament. The Olympics for the longest time was was these amateur semi-pro players. Um, you know, you get small distinctions like, you know, in, in, in the Olympics, Great Britain is a country. In FIFA, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are all separate nations. And so, okay. you know, outside of you know, in 2012, when London hosted the Olympics, the rules are that the host country gets an entrant in every competition. There was kind of an interesting question, like, what are they going to do about this? And they created a, a, Brit- a British soccer team, uh, a national team that was pulled from all of the home countries. And there were all sorts of weird politics in that. The other thing that happened, though, and I want to say this happened, I want to say 92 is when this happened. So late 80s, early 90s, they actually switched the Olympic tournament over to a youth tournament. Officially, it is under 23. Hmm. So it's it, and currently the rules are the players are U twenty three, so they're twenty three and under. Plus, you get three exceptions: overage huh. players who can can join your roster. A lot of countries will use that for maybe older, experienced guys, not necessarily stars. There yeah. are a couple of exceptions. Uh, Brazil in twenty sixteen, and when they ho- hosted the Olympics in Rio, they really wanted to win the men's gold in soccer. And which they had never done before. And so Neymar was on the team. Yeah. Um, who, you know, as we've established, if we do some quick math here, uh, well, he might have been 23 at that point. He might have been right at the end. But they, you know, some countries are willing to do that. It was kind of funny. So the U.S. failed to qualify for 2020, which was <laughs> annoying. Uh, but if you look at some of the players we would have had available for that, for that Olympic tournament, I mean, you're talking about a lot of guys who, given their age, are the guys who start for the national team now, Christian Pulisic, uh, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, a lot of guys who are there. At, we did qualify for next year. We can talk to the Olympics next summer. We did qualify. Uh, so it'll be curious to see how they approach that tournament. And we have, we still have a lot of guys who are still very, still relatively young and eligible to play for the U.S. Now we can talk about where it fits in the calendar and whether that makes sense relative to their club. There's a lot of sort of interesting decisions that go into which tournaments are you going to play. The national team is hopefully should be very likely to play in the Copa America next summer, the South American championship, which we can talk more about by the time we get to November where we're, where we have stuff to do for qualifying. But right. um, yeah, in, in a sense, they, they've, they've really developed very much separately. I mean, really, you know, basketball in the Olympics was dominated by the U.S. with a few, a few hiccups here and there. And then in 1992, they opened it up to the professionals. That's, of course, the dream team. And since then, the rest of the world has gotten progressively better at, at, at basketball. And they see these, these teams are produced, these teams, countries show up at the Olympics with, N, with multiple NBA players, nice full NBA rosters. Not quite as good as LeBron and Carmelo, Anthony, Kobe Bryant. So you know, still the USS for the most part maintained its its maintained winning gold in basketball. Two thousand four accepted, but you know the, the, that and it has seen the elevation of the sport around the rest of the world. So uh, with all this talk of international and national competition, I see you're wearing a U.S. soccer jersey today. I haven't seen that one on you before. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, kicking it old school tonight. This is, I think, a 2002 
so reaching back into the the ages of uh of of our youth well my youth really you were you were there. We knew each other at that point, yeah, but yeah. it was not. Uh, <laughs> and this is this was not among the things that we spoke about. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> but yes, the U.S. It's international break, so the U.S. was also playing games. Uh, well, we played one so far. We'll play our second one tomorrow night on Saturday. The U.S. played Uzbekistan for the first time ever. <laughs> uh, we did win three nil, although it was an unconvincing. Th- really, there were two goals late, very late in the game that made the scoreline a little more flattering than the game itself was. But uh, right. yes, we won. We won three uh, nil. So hooray! Uh, manager Greg Berhalter is back. Um, I don't necessarily sound super enthused about that. We don't need to get into the in and out as far as Greg as national team manager is concerned. Uh, but he's back as manager after not being there in the summer. Uh, starting off with a win against Uzbekistan, and then we will play Oman on Tuesday. Okay, so A, what is the U.S. doing as far as international competition only because we know we're guaranteed a spot in the World Cup? And B, why those teams way like way out of our confederation also? I'm not going to lie. When you started that, I thought you were going to say, so what is Uzbekistan? Uh, <laughs> so there's a... T- there's a- couple of things to think about there. Uh, one, every country uses the international break if they can, um, even if you're just playing what they're called friendlies, these exhibition games, because it's an opportunity to get the players in and a chance for them to play to get practice together and play together, which is valuable for anybody. Now, of course, for the U.S., it's slightly different. For a lot of countries, you bring the players in and you have these practices and they're leading towards other competitions. We mentioned uh, you know, next summer is the European Championships, which is a huge tournament, probably the biggest one outside of the World Cup itself. Um, you know, the South American Championship, the Copa America is next summer. So for some of the, for Europe, they're qualifying. Um, for the U.S., you know, we have our Continental Championship, the Gold Cup, which will be in the summer of 2025. 20, I was going to say summer of 23, but it was the summer of 23. It'll be summer of 25. We also have the possibility of entrance into the Copa America next summer, which has to do with some other games we have to play uh, later this year. But the point is you have these international games to pull in these opportunities to get guys together to play. Um, yeah, So you, you want to fill in those gaps. And especially for the U.S., it's important because we don't have competitive matches like World Cup qualifying. We're not going to mm. have those games. And so the Copa America does take on a slightly greater it is slightly more important. You could arguably play the same game about the Olympics. Not that the Olympics are the same kind of competition. It is, as we said, mostly a youth tournament, but if you've got a couple of guys who you really want to work into the roster, this is an opportunity to get them in. And what is a competitive environment? It is not even the level of the gold cup or certainly the euros or, or Copa America, but it is, you know, actual competition with a rel- some relatively high profile stakes in that an Olympic medal. Uh, so you maybe take that opportunity. We would approach that differently than perhaps I think uh, uh, Spain is qualified for the Olympics. Spain's got the European Championships. They're qualifying for the World Cup. They've got plenty of high-level competition to think about. They've also got a massive youth program and a ton of young players they want to sure. work through their system as well. So for us, it's an opportunity. You want to play these games. We, we will play in every international break. Typically, they are um, usually one in mid to late March. Uh, there's one in September, October, and November. 
And then the summer, technically there's an international break in June. And then also you'll see that's usually when major tournaments are held in, in June, July. Okay. The U.S. will also actually throw in another one or two games in late January, early February for domestic-based players. Um, they call it the January Camp. Um, okay. Sometimes uh, cool. some some more derisive U.S. fans will call it Camp Cupcake because <laughs> you bring in guys who are probably not going to play for the national team, and you're going to play. You're going to play either a, a second uh, a Concacaf team who couldn't ha- didn't have anything else to do, or like we played uh, we played I think it was Serbia this past time. Well, the Serbian league is going on in January, so we got a bunch of guys from the Serbian third division who their team wanted to, their management wanted to take a look at. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a right, but it's an opportunity to get some guys out there. Same for us, you know, to get some yeah. guys. And then there's a couple guys who will come out of there. They play in MLS, and the coaches look and go, "Yeah, we could use you as kind of a, a low end on the roster kind of guy uh, when it comes to the real the the big real competitions." Right now, which that leads us to the other question. Why are we playing Uzbekistan and Oman? <laughs> Which is a question that a lot of U.S. fans were also asking. We are playing them because originally, and, and this story floats around the internet, uh, originally we were supposed to be playing South American teams. I believe the rumor was Brazil and Argentina. Like you want, you know, the goal is to be at the level to compete for and maybe maybe win the World Cup. You have to play teams at those levels to see where you stand, to see how you compete against them. Apparently, somewhere along the line, what happened was that CONMEBOL announced that they were beginning World Cup qualifying in this window. So Brazil and Argentina aren't going to play us. They're busy. Right. And at that point, a lot of other countries have already sort of got their schedules arranged. Europe is doing qualifying for the European Championships. A lot of the big Asian and African teams have opponents. Right. Um, apparently, Germany and Japan played a friendly. I mean, those are two teams we'd love to play in friendlies. We did play Japan last fall before the World Cup. And actually, we will play Germany and Ghana in October. And those are the games we want to play. Yeah. In terms of the quality of teams. But this one, we were kind of stuck at the last minute. Uzbekistan and Oman. Uzbekistan's kind of a team that, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're, they've never qualified for the World Cup, but they've, they've sort of come really close a couple of times. Um, okay. But yeah, they're a team that we should have, we looked really good about the first five or ten minutes. We scored a goal. Things were going well, and then we kind of tailed off. I mean, we probably should look more like those first five to ten minutes than we did much of the rest yeah. of the game. But that's, again, we're working guys in. You know, some guy, some key players are still hurt, weren't coming in. So you, you just try to you work with what you have. Right. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize just how frequent the international breaks were. Keep in mind, the only season that I followed so far was with the one-off oddball World Cup right in the middle. And that threw everything out of whack, I imagine. We only had, I think, one or two international breaks outside of the World Cup last time. So, I be- Yeah, I believe it was we had the September one. Yeah, because the U.S. was playing Japan, and I think we, I think Saudi Arabia in that one. Um, we didn't do very well, but then it turns out both of them had solid World Cups. So, yeah, you know, who knows what you can learn from friendlies? <laughs> but um, we also, but I believe they skipped the October one, and then November, of course, was the World Cup. Right. Stuff. So right, yeah, exactly. we haven't quite. Yeah, we're we're going to get back on a more regular looking schedule. Um, you know this this season. Sure. And a lot of that, by the way, is also tied into residuals from COVID, sort of backfilling a lot of stuff from all of that time off. Because that, of course, took off much of the summer, which is when you play a whole bunch of international tournaments oh, and right. threw a lot of things off as well. Right. 
Yeah, it makes sense. So I hear there's some Arsenal news. One last uh, transfer that happened? Uh, yeah, one last uh, big one. Uh, fare thee well, Nicolas Pepe. We mentioned this last time, I'm fairly certain. Yep. Um, yeah, Nicolas Pepe was signed for £72 million in August of 2019 uh, from Nice in France. Uh, it was, at the time, the club's record. I mean, he he played. He made 112 appearances, scored 27 goals, but never lived up to the guy who was the transfer fee record. Um, right. He was a good player. He was a nice player. He's not. He sort of carried the weight of having that, and that never. And he, he he's just not quite that player. A nice player does a lot of things well. Came in an odd time. Um, it, you know when uh, Unai Emery, the previous manager, was in charge. Um, generally the story was Emery wanted uh, someone else and mm. they signed Nicolas Pepe instead. Um, there may or may not have been some shenanigans in terms of his transfer deal, uh, including the guy who made the deal, uh, Raul Sanyehi, was uh, let go, not shortly afterwards, but at a period when new leadership was taking over at Arsenal and some choices were being made about who was in charge. And Pepe just never quite fit into a lot of what Arteta was trying to do. Um, he was on loan last year, and the hard thing with trying to sell a guy like that is just he's we're paying him so much money. Nobody else, you know, the English. That's the downside from the English perspective, the Premier League's perspective of how much are the the teams in this league pay for players, their salaries. You get outside of England, and very few clubs can even think about that, right? And so to sell this guy, you know, where is he going to go that can match his contract? There isn't anywhere. And essentially what happened, he is signed uh, with uh, Trabzonspor out of Turkey. Um, but part of what happened to make that part of what had to make that happen was Arsenal bought out the remaining remaining, I believe, one season on his contract. Um, yeah. which is a lot of money to sit, basically to pay a guy to not play for you. But um I do think this is better for everybody. Uh, he he needs to go somewhere where he'll actually play. Trabzonspor needs him. Arsenal clearly doesn't. There's no point to keeping him around. We couldn't seem to loan him. He doesn't want to go on loan anymore. Or I, I don't know if he didn't want to, or we couldn't find someone. Either way, yeah. I think this is better for everybody. So it's it's a sad end to a you know kind of an an interesting story, but um, I think this is in the end this is all for the best. Yeah. Uh, I hope I wish him well. And uh, yeah, it seems like the team is growing ever closer to Arteta's vision of what it should be. So that's good. Before we get on to our other topics, uh, I'd like to thank our sponsor Zencast. Our Zen <laughs> Zencaster. <laughs> we are making a Zencast right now using the Zencaster platform. Um, so Keith and I use Zencaster for every episode. It couldn't be easier for each of us. I open up Zencaster in my browser, click a link, and the video is live. Keith does the same thing. He just joins the room, and I hit record, and we get going. Um, as well as 99% of our video post-production is also in Zencaster, where after we're all done, it takes care of the video upload. It's got full quality from both of us, and I configure a couple options, hit go, and it edits everything together with the side-by-side -side view and uh, balances the audio levels. There's all kinds of stuff that you know it's, it's tough to do for a video, especially when I still primarily consider us to be an audio show and... That's where my editing time goes right now is still audio. So definitely let us know, guys. Uh, which do you, which format do you prefer? Do you prefer YouTube or, or podcasting? But either one, we use Zencaster for both. So 
there are a few key benefits of going with Zencaster. So first of all, it's very, very easy. It's so easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. You just log in your browser and start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of Zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. It's also an all-in-one solution. So if you thought about podcasting before, but you thought you might need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. The thing that I forgot to mention last week, I should have put in here for last week, is they have a new iPhone app now. So this is something I was looking for when I was on the beach and we recorded that episode from my car. They did not at that time have any solution for recording from the iPad or the iPhone. They do now. So if you have an iPhone, it's not yet on Android. It's iPhone only. They have an iPhone app. So you can use that if you're out in the field or recording in person with a guest or something. You can use an iPhone and any microphones you connect with Bluetooth or a cable to your iPhone. You can record those in Zencaster too. So if all that sounds good to you, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use our code Gooner and you'll get 30% off your first month of any paid Zencaster plan. That is code Gooner, G-O. O-O-N-E-R. There are two O's and no you and Gooner. And I want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all of our podcasting content needs. So it's time for you to share your story. All right. With all that out of the way, it's a good opportunity to try and clear through some of these questions that have built up uh, during weeks that have had matches and other things to talk about. So uh, the first one is actually quite related to this talk about Nicholas Pepe and transfers. And we had talked, who did we receive from Brighton? Was that uh, Declan Rice? Uh, uh, no, uh, Trossard. Trossard, right. So, yeah, I didn't know how far back this question was going. <laughs> so the question is, for for a team like Brighton, and, and at some point, you know, as teams go through cycles and will be there too at some point, and hopefully the very distant future too, we're kind of a more of a mid-tier team than fighting for the top in any given year. But where does a team draw the line between selling their best players and growing their talent pool with like younger players? Like we were, we're kind of, we were doing that for a while. Like we were kind of letting go of not necessarily our best players, but our lower tier players. But where, how, how do they make a decision like that? So there are, there are several factors that go in. One of them is just sort of talking about the club in question. And especially, this is a very different conversation if you're talking an American league, where you have a closed system where, you know, the, the NFL season just started, uh, this weekend. You know, it's, it's, you know, Sunday, it's, it's Monday night. So they're, they're playing games. The worst team in the NFL, let's just call them the Jets. I can't. Uh, they actually might be pretty good, but you know, if, you, if you're a bad team, are the Cardinals? Cardinals are Cardinals can be terrible this year. Basically, what you can do in a lot of ways, and sometimes this is on purpose, sometimes this is the result of poor planning, is you sort of strip down the roster, and the worst thing that'll happen to you is you finish with the worst record in the league, and you get the top pick in the draft. In soccer, the worst thing that happens to you is you finish in last, and you get relegated to the next division down. Right for. At, Increasingly at this stage, especially for a club like Arsenal or, you know, the, the so-called big club, Manchester United, City, Liverpool, you know, the goal, you're, you're never going to sniff relegation. You have so much money, you can always pay for a strong enough roster. I mean, the worst we've seen out of all of these was probably last year's Chelsea team that finished in 10th. Now, that's not good. 
but there are also quite a few teams in the league who would, well, they would sell a lot of things to finish in 10th place. You know, for them, survival is different. So if you yeah. talk about a team like Brighton, compare them to a team like Arsenal, even when Arsenal goes through a, a this down period, I mean, you, you, you would have seen that the last couple of years when we finished in eighth. And that was a down year for Arsenal. Yeah. Um, you know, being out of European competition. That was the first time we had been out of European competition since the mid-90s. Um, and it's expanded a lot since then. But still, like that that's not a position Arsenal typically finds themselves in. Whereas a team like Brighton, they've gotten into Europe this past year. This is the first time they've ever been. This is huge for them to be in European competition. Um, so... There's always that balance, first of all, about your expectations. Where are you? Where does your budget say you should be? Uh, where does sort of the quality and the reputation of your club say you should be? Because anytime you talk about transfers, there are three groups involved, the two teams and the player. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of players. We saw this last winter. Uh, Arsenal was pursuing uh, from Brighton, Moises Caicedo. Caicedo very clearly said, I want to go to Arsenal. I mean, quite he didn't like actually say those words necessarily, but clearly was saying internally at least, and was making he clearly was connected with us. Um, said he wanted to go to Arsenal, and Brighton in the end decided not to sell him. Um, we go back to the Pepe story. Go back to August 2019. The player that Unai Emery wanted was Wilfred Zaha, who was at Crystal Palace. Wilfred Zaha very clearly said in many public channels like social media i want to go to arsenal hmm. but arsenal the, the club itself actually decided not to buy him i don't know quite what palette maybe it was a money thing palace we was asking too much you know because you're negotiating those fees and everything um you know when you sell a big player we saw west ham selling declan rice we saw um you know tottenham selling harry kane he's not a young developing player but the same kind of thing it's really about the money you get back for them and then being able to take that money and reinvest it into new players. Some of them are going to be younger that you hope to grow. Some of them are players like, you know, we saw Trossard, Jorginho, or even a guy like Declan Rice, who's a bit more of a finished product, still fairly young, but a bit more of a finished product. And so trying to get that right mix of players at the right age, the peak of their athletic abilities, uh, so that you have the best possible team. As far as selling off players, sometimes it's sometimes it, it, it it's a judgment call. You know, Liverpool may have waited just a little bit too long to sell some of their players or to rebuild part of their midfield, and so you're seeing Liverpool kind of take a bit of a step back. Kind of, and there's injuries involved as well, but retool themselves slightly. And that's you you want always want to be in a position. And they talk about this in, in even in American pro sports. You always you would much rather get rid of a guy one year too early than one year too late. Because if yeah. he leaves and he goes and has a nice season somewhere else, uh, that's no good. But if he stays and has a bad season with you, that hurts you. Yeah. Really hurts you. Um, you know, so sometimes you want to be proactive, but not too proactive because certain you know, we look at Granite Jaka, right? It's not just losing Granite Jaka the player, who has his pluses and minuses, but losing Granite Jaka the leader, the on-field right. leader, the locker room leader, that's a bigger thing. Uh, and, and that has to play into your calculations as well. What does this player mean for your team? Mm-hmm. You know, for West Ham to sell Declan Rice, they're not just losing their best player, they're losing a real leader on the team. On the other hand, a guy who sort of had hinted to them clearly, 
I've done all I can do at West Ham. I want a chance to go play mm-hmm. for a team that really competes for the Premier League, the Cup, the Champions League. And, and, and that was Arsenal who did some recruiting as well. So yeah. how do you draw that line? You do your best uh, yeah. to sort of f- to guess where you are in your development cycle, where your players are in, your develop- in their development cycles, where you need them in terms of your lineup construction. Um, you know, you always, if you can sell from a surplus, we got a lot of defenders. Okay, we can let one go because we're not going to play them all, but we might get some money for him. Um, as opposed to, you know, holding on to, you know, maybe we need another player in a position. So there's a lot yeah. that goes into that. All right. Cool. Good answer. So we talked about Chelsea and them kind of dropping down to 10th. What caught my attention, it must have probably been the reverse fixture or whatever, the, the second time we played them last season. You had mentioned that they either won the league or at least came close to it only like two or three years ago, something that shocked me. And how does a team fall apart so quickly? That that really made an impression on me. Um, There's a line. I, I've seen it attributed to Ernest Hemingway, but I'm <laughs> sure it's come up in a couple of the contexts. Um, how, did, how did you go bankrupt? Yep. Uh, gradually, then suddenly. Yep. Um, two, two, two things are going on with Chelsea. I think a short-term problem and a long-term problem. The short-term problem they had is that they kept hiring the wrong guy as manager. They stuck too long with Frank Lampard, who was a club legend as a player, not a good manager is not, it cannot manage at the top level and then replaced him with, um, Thomas Tuchel, who did win them the champions league back in 2021. Uh, but Tuchel was complaining about the way the club was being managed, players that were being brought in and what have you. He got sacked the early part of last season. Oh, did they bring in in his place? Uh, Graham Potter, they brought in from Brighton. And Potter, you know, all the stories that come out after he was fired, Potter was just sort of in over his head. It was a bit, it was a step too far. He wasn't quite prepared to be the manager of a club the size of Chelsea. Um, he was fired. They brought in uh, Frank Lampard as the caretaker manager, which was just, right. sure, why not? Um, <laughs> so in a lot of ways, it was a lot of poor, you know, these poor managerial decisions that don't quite work out the way they need to. Um, and so you see that clubs sort of falling apart. Players don't develop like they're supposed to. Um, Chelsea's got a couple other things going on there. One is that um, for the longest time, they were owned by a Russian billionaire named Roman Abramovich who got his money, uh, was one of the oligarchs who made a bunch of his money after the fall of the Soviet Union, some of which through things that uh, we're not going to talk about in a family-friendly podcast, uh, some of the things he may or may not have been involved in. Um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, the assets of many of these Russian billionaires and oligarchs were seized by foreign governments, including Great Britain and, and Abramovich's, and he was forced to sell Chelsea. Hmm. Um, it was sold to a consortium of businessmen. One, the, the sort of the, the, the face of it all is a guy named Todd Bailey, who's actually a, an American investment banker. And there's a bunch of other people involved. That, that, you know, it, Bailey sort of gets credit as the front man, but he's probably not even the biggest money player in it. Hmm. Since then, their transfer strategy has been a bit scattershot. Um, one of the things Abramovich did when he came in was Chelsea became a club. I mean, Chelsea had won one league title back in the 70s or maybe the 60s. Like, they were – who even thought about Chelsea? Like, they were not a club <laughs> anybody thought about, like, as kind of a – but they were – but they were 
they're in London. It's very nice, a very nice part of London, um, that neighborhood. And, um, you know, he, he basically saw an opportunity there, plowed a whole bunch of money into them, bought a whole bunch of players. Chelsea shoots up by, I think it was 2005. They won the league for the first time in forever. And since then, they've really sort of been consistently at the top of the league, hmm. uh, winning FA Cups, winning the Champions League twice, um, they, you know, having a lot of success. Under Abramovich, they've always had that same, they always had that same kind of managerial churn, but they would always have some fairly strong figures. Uh, Jose Mourinho is the most famous one, really the one who sort of took them into that, that stratosphere of being champions. Um, now they just seem to be buying players for no discernible reason. I think we talked a little bit about this. Their roster last year was huge and to the point where they, they couldn't even fit all the players in the dressing room at training. Like they couldn't fit in the room. They were just weren't enough lockers. Uh, just a, 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 a too massive of a roster. Um, and that does a lot internally. Nobody knows where they stand. Nobody knows how they're doing. Um, you know, got there, the, there is constant churn on the field. You know, who's in the lineup? Who's playing? What are your roles? Uh, they're really, they were just a mess, really. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, again, they're probably going to be okay. You know, they're probably a pretty good, pretty good shout to get, certainly get back into Europe next year because they don't have European competition. They don't have to worry about, you know, saving their guys. They can put all their energy into, into the Premier League. They still have some internal, some structural issues, but with their manager, uh, Pochettino, with a focus on the Premier League as opposed to worrying about what's happening in Europe, you know, that might allow them to certainly get at least back into the Europa League uh, for next season. Right. But yeah, they, they dropped like a stone and it was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So last question per se, um, what are the regions of England? So we know that there's a whole bunch of London teams. I know Manchester is an area I think West Ham is another London team, I think. Mm -hmm. But what other regions of England factor into the Premier League? Uh, Quick geography. So we'll take the long version on this. So we go way back to the foundation of of the sport. Soccer was generally in a lot of ways, or football, was seen a lot of ways as a working class game. I mean, if you go all the way back, um, actually there's a, well, if you go all the way back, it, it like most sports, it was a recre- it was recreation for the elites. Um, and if you and in about the eighteen eighties, you started to see uh, the game pick up amongst the the working classes, factory workers in cities like Birmingham and Blackburn and in, you know Leeds, uh, Manchester, Liverpool, places like that. And be, the sport increasingly became a working class game. And we're talking, this is the 19th century. This is the 1880s. Um, you see the advent of professionalism, uh, where the idea that we're paying these people to play this game, which was very, you know, of course, the upper crust British people. And, you know, we talked about the amateurism of the Olympics. This idea lasted for a very long time that sports shouldn't be for money. It should be about the love of the game. Okay, yeah, but I also love when the game makes me money. Um, <laughs> well, and, and there's and, also there's also the idea that really only people who do have their own means are going to then be able to play, whereas exactly. if you're able to make some money and more money as you get better, that opens it up to, to more talent, yeah. 
Exactly. And so, I mean, you see a lot of the same conversations happen in the U.S., the, the advent of professional sports in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. I mean, you look at even the, you know, a major American professional sports league, the National League of Baseball is founded in 1876. The American League is 1901. The NFL is 1920. Um, you know, the NHL is, is I think, 1920, somewhere in that, or the late, late 19-teens. I mean, that's kind of when this thing is happening. Um, so the same thing is happening in, in England as well. There's actually a really interesting, it's a dramatization of all of it, uh, but it's on Netflix. It's called uh, The English Game. And it's sort of about, so it's by Julian Fellows, the guy who did uh, Downton Abbey. So for all of you who are Downton Abbey fans, you've, you've probably already <laughs> seen it or familiar with it. But if you're not, and it, it goes into this idea of the, the notion of, I mean, there's a lot of class that plays into it. Of course, this is your Euro- European class structure. So it's very rigid, very, uh, very noticeable. Um, it's an interesting show, touches on some of those issues, particularly Blackburn, one of the first, uh, you know, professional teams. Uh, you know, their their chief rival in the show, which was a real club, was that were called the Old Etonians. <laughs> Them all being, you know, rich Londoners who all went to Eton. So, um, yeah. you know, and literally, <laughs> literally played the game on the side as a hobby. Um, yeah. So, so there, you go all the way back, as you get into the foundation of the football league, the bulk of the powerful clubs or the strong clubs in the professional game are going to be in what's called the Midlands, which is sort of the central century around Bir- central England around Birmingham, and then up into the basically the industrial north. I mean, you think of England or Britain has a very clear north-south division. Um, the rugged industrial working class north and the, you know, sort of posh, elitist, educated upper class south. The south being centered on London, and you know, there's all that plays into that. And you know, of course, the most famous band to come out of the North was one of the famous gritty industrialists, the Beatles, um, <laughs> as opposed to the the as opposed to the the posh elites uh, from London with, you know, upper you know, or the Rolling Stones with their family friendly lyrics like, um, well, we don't have to get into that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it all fits together if you think yeah. about the, the history of England as a country. So. Most of the major teams, especially in the early going, are all in the north. Everton, Burnley, uh, Aston Villa, Sheffield uh, United and Wednesday. Um, Really, Arsenal sort of becomes the outlier. Arsenal is one of the first one of the first big London clubs. And for the longest time, it's one of the only big London clubs, big southern clubs. Um, And that slowly changes it. There's there's some argument that that's shifting in particular now in the modern day. You're seeing not only Chelsea, but Tottenham, uh, you know, West Ham sort of maybe punching above their historical weight because of the power of the metropole and how trends of globalization trends toward these major cities. I mean, London is so much bigger than the rest of of the cities in in Great Britain. that it's sometimes hard to fathom relative to, you know, the the comparison of the United States, which sort of talked about before. I, I looked this up the other day for some different reason comparing like London and Liverpool, London and New York are roughly the same size. And we think of, you know, London as being, you know, obviously a massive global city, New York, a massive global city. London is the center of everything in the UK. New York is not quite that. It certainly is still very influential, although it used to be much more so even within our lifetimes, that's diminished a great deal. Liverpool is the fourth largest city in Great Britain. 
It has a population roughly roughly equivalent to Indianapolis. Hmm. And, and Indianapolis, and by the way, no no shots. I've been I enjoy Indianapolis. I've been several times. They have professional sports teams. They are you know they're a, a you know they're certainly not an unimpressive city. But when you put it in those terms, oh gosh, Liverpool doesn't sound like like that big a deal, does it? And it's the fourth largest city in the UK, right? So it, it's just a totally you know. You've also got obviously money and stuff attracting to the big, attracting to the big brands: Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, the big six we've talked about, plus Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs. I guess you know, sort of tracking yeah. in that direction. So, um, in terms of how they're distributed now, I, you know, the, really the way to break into the big the big club club, so to speak, you know. Really, it came about in the 80s. Liverpool was the dominant club. I mean, won like multiple trophies every year, dominant throughout the 80s. Arsenal sort of broke that spell and kind of worked their way in. Arsenal and Manchester United are the two clubs that really grab onto the Premier League when it gets formed, in particular United. United's won like half of their titles all time were won since the Premier League was founded. Um, they kind of have a, their history is a little more, history is a little more complicated than like, oh, they win all the time everywhere. Hmm. <laughs> had a lot of dark ages, and, you know, some of them with some tragedy, but some of them also just they had some periods where they weren't very good. Um, they've been relegated a few times, which Arsenal has never been. But, you know, generally speaking, you have Arsenal and Arsenal and uh, United there in the days of the Premier League. Chelsea, uh, you know, Chelsea, who came came up because Obramovich just spent a whole bunch of money. Uh Tottenham has benefited from being in London and being very smart in a lot of investments, building a new stadium, sort of developing themselves as a larger club. Uh, Manchester City was bought by, you know, the, the you know, by the United Arab Emirates, um, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Newcastle's been bought by Saudi Arabia. Uh, so Newcastle will probably be a, a more permanent fixture at the top of the league. So really, how do you get into the big the big club now is to have someone who's willing to spend a ton of money on your team. And Arsenal has that in, in Stan Kroenke. We, we've certainly been willing to spend and we have the revenue to back it up, but that's kind of what you need yeah. to, to get to that stage. All right. Yeah. It seems like geographically, it's probably easier to compare England to any number of United States rather than the whole country of the United States. Just, size and as far as makeup, like it's, it sounds like it's closer to like Illinois or something, right? Where Chicago is all the way at one end, mm-hmm. right? The rest of the state, you've got some cities that are okay size, but like Chicago's where everything's really happening. It seems like it's kind of that just flipped. Sort of. Um, I think it'd be Chicago if St. Louis was in Illinois. Okay. I think having St. Louis as a count, like you'd have some counterbalances. I mean, you know, I, I haven't been to Illinois a few times. I mean, Yes, Chicago is Chicago is so much bigger. Like there is nothing that can even compare. Manchester's a decent sized city. Birmingham's a decent sized city. But if you think about it, like that gap we talked about, you know, in in the in 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 American terms, again, it's it's New York to Indianapolis, and that's your top four. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that that's the kind of gap we're talking about. But I, but then again, Liverpool is a global brand, much like Arsenal is. You know, they have massive fan ba- a massive fan base around the world. So. Right. You know, in some ways they're detached. We talked about the trends of globalization. In some ways they are very much detached from being a, you know, just a, a Liverpool based club to being a, a, a brand 
with the city's name attached to it. Yeah. Much in the same way the New York Yankees have been. You think about how many places you see people wearing a Yankees hat. Well, some don't even know anything about baseball or who the Yankees <laughs> are, but it's that New York, right? That association between the, the, the team and the city that, that plays well. I saw a news story about that exact topic. I think it was earlier this year where there's there's some country in Southeast Asia or something that literally treats the Yankees logo as if it were the Gucci logo or something like that. Like they do not know what baseball even is, <laughs> but everyone's wearing Yankees hats because it's just a fashion. Symbol. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's and that's been a long time thing that that NY, especially that particular style of it is just there's. I mean, you'll see that you'll see people wearing Yankee hats and like, why is it green? Um, <laughs> but that's because it's not really a Yankees hat. It's the New York hat. And so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked before about our uh, super fan only segments and how we do some, some discussion. Sometimes we talked about the third kits a few weeks back. Uh, we sometimes have special bonus segments that are for super fans only. Um, we have one of those this week, but we are going to let everyone watch it. So <laughs> this is something that we would ordinarily do as something like a bonus segment, but we want everybody to be able to enjoy and consider becoming a Goonie super fan. So this segment is brought to you by our, our membership. Consider going to our site. There's links on the YouTube show description and in the show notes from uh, your podcast player. Consider giving us a dollar a month and becoming a super fan so so with that keith doesn't know what we're about to do he doesn't know what we're about to discuss and uh he had a box that arrived at his house a few days ago uh if you would like to now open the box i have mm -hmm. mine already oh you've opened yours already no okay. no it, it is okay the, the outer packing container is open the oh, box is well, if i had done that i would have at least opened that i'm saying no no i didn't want you to because i okay. wanted this part to be a okay. live reveal okay okay i knew it was in it all right from <laughs> from mckenzie mckenzie okay. yes oh dear <laughs> oh I'm sitting here thinking after this is over, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go sit and I've, you know just watch some stuff on TV, and I suppose I could always uh, always have a snack. Yeah. Know, so. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. As, dear. as longtime listeners may and viewers may note, um, I'm a big Apple fan. I follow Apple blogs all day, every day, and because of that, I'm, I'm more up to speed on what's going on with Apple as a network than I am with others. And whenever anything with Ted Lasso happens, uh, I know about it pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, so I, this company, McKenzie Limited, I believe their name is, they uh, they made a special uh, Biscuits with the Boss. Anyone who's watched Ted Lasso, this is a recurring theme on the show where Ted brings in these biscuits, which to American listeners who are not familiar, they're cookies basically, right? Um, he brings them to eat with the owner of the the club and uh, <laughs> she, she doesn't want to eat them, but they're so good she can't help it. And she really would love to know the recipe and he, he will never share. So I am curious now. So let me, I haven't, I, I slipped the outer cover off. Mm. I am opening them up and I'm going to make a mess all over my office now, aren't I? <laughs> I, be, I would say I was just reading the label there. It's, it's just, it's just shortbread. I mean, I say just shortbread, you know, yeah. him, you know, I mean that, you know, which makes sense. I mean, Ted's characters from, from Kansas city, like, you know, central, you know, middle America, good America, shortbread. It's a, yeah. you know, all right, so we're gonna oh, take my, a bite oh, together the first all right, time. Well, uh, all right, do it together and see what we think. <laughs> do they live up to the reputation? <laughs> so this is what they look like. I mean, I could, I could see how you know, 
as someone who's eaten shortbread before, I, I, I mean, I should say I have thoughts on it. Like, I, oh man, that's shortbread. <laughs> uh, but I could see how, to an English person who's never had shortbread, how that could be. Uh, although I don't know, maybe shortbread's more popular, but I think an American style. So, uh, cheers. cheers, mate. Mm. Yeah, yeah, shortbread. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It's good. And you're right. Now I made a mess on my desk too. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's a. It's about the same as most other like sugar cookies that I've had before. Mm-hmm. Nothing to rock my world, but it's good. It's, it's mm-hmm. well done. It's a well, good version of the art form. <laughs> speaking of speaking of Ted Lasso, have you um, have you have you made any progress toward finishing the final season? No, I didn't think so. But I the Arsenal I episode is still the last one that I watched. <laughs> that I think was another uh, listener uh, super fan only bonus topic. But <clears throat> yeah, uh, I'm like about halfway through. Um, my wife is a travel nurse, so she mm. ends up spending a lot of time away from home these days. And uh, I watch that with her, so uh, I just need to stay behind for a little bit longer. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, Tasty. <laughs> sure brought some baby wipes in. Wipe my fingers off. <laughs> All right. Any, that, that's uh, right. For the very low cost of our membership fee. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Give me a cost. You, you can watch two grown men eat. <laughs> All right. Well, can you tell me what's... Uh, Coming up for next week once you get your fingers uh, neat. Yeah, I'll start cleaning up my <laughs> up a little bit. Uh, next week, uh, we mentioned before, Everton on Sunday. We're back. We're at Goodison Park. Um, this is a game we lost last year. So- Sean Dyche's Everton. We did get revenge on them at the Emirates, but it'd be nice to win at Goodison Park because Everton kind of stinks and we should, you know, we should be getting back into it. Um, we also will play since, yeah, we record on Mondays, but we do. Episodes don't drop till later in the week, so we'll let you know this in advance. Champions League is back Wednesday at home against PSV, which I, I, I meant to point this out as well. We'll, we'll talk about this briefly. Um, but between, if we think about the international breaks, the sort of good posts on the season or markers on how the season is going, uh, we have seven games scheduled between now and the next international break in mid-October. They are at Everton, PSV at home, Tottenham in the North London Derby, at Brentford in the League Cup, at Bournemouth, at Lens in the Champions League, and then home to Manchester City. Um, that is a tricky stretch. Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at our, our three home games out of that are Champions League opener, North London Derby, Manchester City. Well, okay then. <laughs> um, and the away fixtures, you know. Everton's tricky. We've talked about Goodison Park at Brentford in the in a cup game. With you know that's not an easy one at Bournemouth. Which okay, that's probably the game we're looking at saying we should good win. And then at Lens, I you know was the last time we went to France. Is Lens very good? It doesn't look like it, but that's why they play the games. Yep. <laughs> All right. 
Thanks for joining us at Gooner U. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and some other places, and we appreciate you subscribing to our show and sharing it with friends. If you're watching on YouTube, and we certainly recommend you do, please like and subscribe. And consider, if you want to listen to our show while you're doing other things, consider subscribing to our podcast, too. Uh, to support the show even more, of course, you can become a Gooner U superfan like we just discussed. For ad-free episodes, raw, unedited recordings available the night we record, we'll probably start calling those bootlegs soon. I think that's kind of a term of art I've seen in other podcasts. Um, and you can get bonus segments like the one that we just uh, gave you with uh, the biscuits with the boss. So that's uh, just different things that are maybe a little bit off topic for the show, but not entirely and uh, fun, fun for us and hopefully fun for you. It's only a dollar a month and there's a link in the show notes or description to join. Thanks again to our sponsor, Zencaster. You go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use code Gooner, G-O-O-N-E-R. You can also use the special link that'll be in the show description and show notes. My name is Dove. You can follow me on Twitter at Dove Frankel. You can follow our show at Gooner U Show for updates and to ask questions. With me, as always, is Keith, and you can find him in a pub watching Arsenal matches. Go, you gunners, and go, go, USA.